All right, I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the, the, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, we just ask this morning that you would speak to us through your word, that you would challenge us with the truth that we find here. God, that we would be your faithful people through your power, through your change in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are continuing our study this morning through the passages that revolve around the life of Samuel in the Old Testament. We're just finding those stories that revolve around his life. It's, uh, at, at first, honestly, I thought we're going to do a study on Samuel's life. And we're going to tell Samuel's story. But the truth is, it isn't Samuel's story just as your life is not your life nor mine is mine, it is God's. If we've offered it to him, it's his story, and he's the hero of it. And so we don't want to get confused in that. So we're going to continue these stories, these passages, around the life of Samuel, God's man, Samuel. Last week I mentioned that the story doesn't begin with the king. We talk about Samuel often as the kingmaker. He's the one that brought about the monarchy and the kingship in God's people. At least sort of helped to establish that. God sent him uh, to anoint the first two kings of Israel. But the story of kings in God's people didn't begin with Samuel even. It didn't begin with a king. It didn't begin with Samuel. It actually begins with his mother, Hannah. Today we're going to look at a speci- uh, specifically at her words from this, um, this, this prayer of praise that we just read through there. These are her last words in scripture, and they're an, a powerful encouragement and a challenge to us. And as is our normal practice, I am going to ask the few kids, we are a little bit s- smaller in crowd, so maybe if you feel like a kid, join out right on in. And we're going to, I'm going to ask a few questions. We're going to talk about some things that'll get us started. So, in our church's doctrinal statement, so I've already used big, non-kid-friendly words, but in our church's doctrinal statement on our website, under the heading of, of the true God, we say some things about God. Okay? 
So we say some things about God, and we use really big words. These aren't just big words. These are big words for everybody. Really big words. So we say that God alone is omnipresent. Omnipresent. Now, that's a really, really big word. Do you know what it means? Does anybody know what it means to say that God is omnipresent? What is that? What do you mean by that? He's always there. Okay, so he's always present. He's always there. Okay, so he's everywhere, all the time. Let's keep, let's keep going with this. We also say that God alone is omniscient. What does omniscient mean? This is like a trivia thing. Not quite Jeopardy, but omniscient. Anybody know? He knows everything. Very good. He is all-knowing. These big words say God is all-knowing. We also say God alone is um, omnipotent. What does that mean? Or you'll hear me say this, and people make fun of me, but every once in a while I'll get caught up because I'm saying these together, and I'll say omnipotent, but omnipotent. What? What does it mean? <laughs> it's not bad. What does it mean? If something is potent, it's like very capable or strong if we say oh wow that smell is potent i don't know that'd be bad but um it's strong and so uh, all powerful every strength all power is um god is omnipotent or omnipotent now i got me myself all confused look at that all right here's another one this one we don't say as often god alone is omnibenevolent spell check things i made that one up so maybe i did but All right, I'll give you this one. It means perfectly good or completely good, always good. God alone is immutable, we say in there. I promise we're getting close to the end of the list. Immutable. Any guess what immutable means? Unchanging. He doesn't change. He doesn't transform or change his being or change in the way he, he is the same, constant. We also say God alone, this one's a little simpler, is eternal. What does that mean? If God is eternal, what does that mean? Never gets old. Never gets old, okay. Yeah. Also, when was he born? Never. Okay, yeah. So like always existing. So eternal. Always existing. God alone is eternal. Here's the last one. God is sovereign. I wonder if we could say omni-sovereign. I don't know. I'm thinking of that at this moment. But anyway, what does it mean that God is sovereign? It means in control. The king is sovereign over his kingdom. Sometimes they even call the king a sovereign. Um, and so the, taken together, these qualities all suggest that God is good. He knows and he sees all things. He can do something about whatever's happening in all situations. We, we think of these, these are big words. These are big terms, but they are, by definition, 
who God is, and that's good for us. This morning, we're going to talk about how unique God is. There's no one, no being, nobody can be like God. And by that, we mean that no one is is God, except God. And this is especially true in the area of sovereignty. Remember that this word means basically God is in control. We're going to come back to that one, actually. Um, if you want to look at these again, they are on our website under our doctrinal statement. Be, feel free to look at that, read through that, study through that, ask questions about that. Love to, um, to talk about those statements because they're, they're just the big things, the important things that do matter, even though sometimes the words are so big we struggle to figure them out. I get it. I do too. So pay attention as we look at how God is in control over everything this morning uh, that happens in the world and how that's actually encouraging to us who follow him. In our passage this morning, this takes place during the time of the transfer of Samuel to Eli. So his parents have brought him to the tabernacle, the temple, and they're giving him to Eli to stay for his life, to serve God however God has for him to serve for life. This story, the story, uh, the story of Samuel's dedication to the Lord records Hannah's prayer, which is actually really encouraging for us um, and, and challenging. This prayer is at the beginning of the book of Samuel, or actually the books of Samuel. Remember when we talked about kind of introducing this book at all, that these two books, First and Second Samuel, were really one story. They're one book. They got split up when you had to start writing them down on scrolls. Because there's a point where it's just too long and impractical to be able to do it. So they split them up, just like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And so uh, they split up the Samuel books. But this is at the beginning of the Samuel story, the, the, the book of Samuel, not just the man. Because he um, is not even in the second Samuel book. Um, but uh, these, these, there are themes that we see in this prayer. That will be echoed again at the very end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to see David um, give a song of thanksgiving. And it's going to con- uh, consist of these same things that we're going to talk about this morning. And then at the bookends of this big story, um, you have these prayers. But in the middle, you're going to watch stories that talk about God's sovereignty, God's goodness, God's taking someone from nothing and making something out of them. These themes carry throughout the book. Let's look at her words in this prayer, though. We're actually going to start in verse 2. So if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse, not sorry, 1 Samuel, I did that wrong, I caught it myself. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, that's where we're going to begin. Hannah says this, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. God is great. No one is like him. He is without compare. That's what she's saying right here. And because God is beyond compare, Hannah tells us that we can, uh, that, that, that we can talk no more so very proudly and that we should not let arrogance come from our mouth. Like when we know God and realize who he is and understand his unique nature and being, we have to drop our pride and our arrogance. When we understand who God is, we've got to be different because we realize how far away that is from us. We do not compare. Now, this is a journey everybody goes through. If you follow 
God, you've gone through this journey. Because you have to realize, I can't control everything. But God does and can. I don't know what to do in this situation, but I know my God is in charge. And so we realize we are not God. That's what it comes down to. And when we realize who God is, we all have to drop pride, arrogance, where do we get those things? How do, we, how do people stay prideful? How do they stay arrogant? They quit looking or they don't look at God. They begin looking at other people, right? You're always going to find someone that's less capable than you are. And you're going to be able to be proud of what you've accomplished in comparison to that person. You're going to be able to be um, arrogant when you look at what they did compared to what you did, or what they can do, supposedly, and what you can do or think you can do. Sometimes that's the problem, too. But when you look at God, there is no room for any of that. Nothing. The rest of verse 3 finishes out the thought, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Now, God does know lots of things. We said He's omniscient. Um, and, and we said that earlier, but this is not what it means here. This knowledge is not about knowing things just in general, like some kind of thesaurus or, or dictionary or encyclopedia. It's not about knowing things. Hannah means that God knows you. God knows me. He knows what we do. He knows why we do it. He knows us. And by him, the one who knows us, our actions are judged. You see, you might be able to convince someone else that you're really a good person. You're really good, I don't know, I'm just thinking sports, just happens to be a thought. But like in basketball, you might be able to convince someone else you're a better basketball player than they are. And in the same kind of a way, you might be able to convince someone else that you're a good person better maybe than, than them. You might be able to, to make them think, wow, you have yourself put together. Your life is all figured out. You might get someone else to think those things, that you're the best. You might even get them to think that you're holy. You're very, a very godly person. Maybe you're really powerful. But you know who you can't convince of that? God. Because God knows you. And God knows me. God's uniqueness destroys our pride. He is awesome. And actually, that's the first truth that we have this morning. God is awesome. I know that if some of you were here last fall, you were waiting for me to write awesomer, that that was a whole different sermon for a different time. You'll have to go back if you didn't hear that one. But God is awesome. God is awesome. Um, from that awesomeness, we actually move into verse 4 through 8 in this prayer. Hannah gives us seven contrasts or, uh, or changes of situation. These contrasts are actually reversals that God is very capable of orchestrating in both directions. Up, down, left, I don't know how you want to do that. But the first contrast is found in verse 4 and it says this. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble, feeble bind on strength. The literal reference here is to a bow that shoots an arrow, you know, like a weapon, uh, which is a symbol of strength and force and particularly military might for someone. But it, it can mean just strength, power. 
What Hannah is saying here is that God has the power to take away the strength of the strong. If you're strong, God can take that away. Whatever level or thought you have when I say that. But he also has the power to give strength to those who are weak. Those who don't have power, God can give power to them. In 1 Samuel 17, we have the story of David and Goliath. The story of a boy, at this point, a boy who trusts God and overpowers a giant in the middle of war. Not just a giant, a giant warrior. In the middle of war, he wins the war or causes things to completely change for God's people. God can take the weak and make them strong. Hannah declares that God can take away and give strength as he chooses. That's the first thing. Contrast number two. First half of verse five says this. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The Bible is full of stories of God coming through and providing food to his people. Under Moses, the people ate manna. Uh, God sends ravens to feed Elijah. Jesus miraculously multiplies bread and fish. Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 that God, uh, that it's God who provides food for the birds. And he cares more about you and me than those birds. God provides. God knows and can provide what you need. They're saying food here. I think that's a big need. We do need food to survive. But I think the same truth is there for everything. God can provide, give you provision for the things you need. He can. But he can also take those things away. Both goes both directions. Then we have contrast number three. The remainder of verse 5 says, The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Now the barren being the one who cannot have children now has seven, but the one who has many is forlorn. If you remember our discussion in chapter 1 from last week, we talked about how God blessed Hannah with a child. The story told us in verse 5, that, that in, in chapter 1, that God was also responsible for withholding children from Hannah. So God withheld children for a period of time, and then God provides Samuel, and then other children will find out. God is all responsible for giving and withholding. God is in control of both giving and withholding children. That's, this gets more uncomfortable as we look at the word forlorn here. At least that's the way the ESV translates. I'm not sure what translation you may have, but the word at the end, forlorn, the, the one who is left, The word is not saying that those who are fertile are now barren. It's not saying that, actually. It's saying that those with children might lose those children. Forlorn in English suggests like a mother is, uh, that the mother would be like abandoned. But in Hebrew, this word speaks of a widow who loses her husband. And therefore, in this case, it's a mother who loses her children, meaning they all die. That's a really sad situation, right? Now we have to address the obvious question. Is this a direct prayer attack? Sadly, it's possible that people try to attack people in prayer. I, I don't want to think about times I've ever heard of that or thought of that. But um, th- Is this a direct prayer attack on Panina? That was the, girl, the, the rival wife of Hannah last chapter. Is this something like that? Is Hannah gloating that Penina has lost all of her children? I don't believe that's true at all. Not at all. Chapter 1 tells us that Penina had sons and daughters. Therefore, both of those are plural. Therefore, she has at least four 
maybe more children. 1 Samuel 2.21 suggests that Hannah eventually goes on to have six children, if you count Samuel as separate from that number at the most. And so, she doesn't have seven. It doesn't really work out. This isn't exactly that situation. It can't be literal. So what's happening? Seven is a perfect number in the Bible. It's a number of completeness. So my paraphrase goes something like this. This is not Hannah speaking against Penina. This is Hannah talking about God. This is, this is my paraphrase, my message translation. I don't know. God can cause the barren woman to have the perfect number of children. And he can equally cause the woman with many children to one day find herself completely alone. See, both sides are possible. God is in control. You can look at the story in Job and see Job experience and Job's wife experience both of these things. God taking, God blessing with children, God taking away those children in a freak accident that God seems to be very much involved in and allow, allow to happen. And then we see God blessing with children later. We see both sides of this. Hannah, so Hannah is saying that God can bless with children or withhold children or more specifically remove children. The question is how uncomfortable are we with that? See, I'm uncomfortable with that a little bit. Like this is a little bit crazy. It suggests that God is in charge of life and death. And that's actually the next contrast. So yes. Verse 6 says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Sheol being the place of the dead. And he raises up. And this can be understood both figuratively and literally. Figurative, uh, this truth can be figurative at times in the Bible. Psalms 86, 12 through 13. In that psalm, David declares, I give thanks to you, O O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever for great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David wasn't literally resurrected here. He wasn't in the place of the dead and now alive again. He's suggesting that the darkest parts of life, we feel a glimpse of the reality of death. From those pits in the experience of life, God can bring deliverance. And this is true. But this truth is also literal as well. We see resurrection explicitly talked about later in Isaiah 26. We see resurrection in Ezekiel 37. We, we see resurrection happen even in the Old Testament. These, these came after Hannah's prayer, but we do see them. In the New Testament, we see literal resurrections in Jesus' miracles. Not just one, but multiples. The most famous of which is Lazarus. Lazarus, uh, Lazarus sorry, um, who, who was resurrected as proof of who Jesus is, along with these other miracles. And of course, we can't skip over the resurrection of Jesus himself from the dead. This truth leads to the trust throughout the New Testament that the dead will be raised and resurrected to judgment in Jesus's and in the disciples and in Paul's teaching. It's all over the New Testament. This event is pictured specifically in the book of Revelation. Something that's going to take place. So literal resurrection is not outside of God's power, nor outside of his plan, but the flip side is also true. Talking about raising up, but the opposite is true. Among other examples, we can see 
bringing to death, bringing to the place of death, to Sheol or whatever, we can see these, uh, this experience having God directly involved in death of someone or people. Especially in the judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. In our Sunday school class, which is 9 o'clock, um, we've been reading through Genesis, and we came across Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah are there, and they are destroyed. And God saves Lot and a few, uh, and, and it's part of his family. But God destroys those entire places, the people in them. In the New Testament, we see God directly involved in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, that's not just in the New Testament, it's in the church. These people, uh, the story is there in Acts 5 of people who deceive God's people. God is, seems to be directly involved in this and they die. So as well as offering life, it is within God's sovereign control to take it too. That's a big one. Contrast number five. As we read the first half of verse seven, it says this, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. Obviously, money is not uh, pictured as evil here. In fact, nowhere in the Bible is money itself evil. It's, a spe- it's specifically the love of money that uh, Paul says to Timothy is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, the worship of money, the desire for money over uh, everything else. That's the problem. Think with me. Where does prosperity come from? How do we get Money and wealth. Does it come through our efforts and opportunities that we seek out? Answer, sure, sure, yeah. Does it come through our abilities? Sure. Does it come through our education and the preparation for what we're doing? Yes, absolutely. But all of that, the ability, the situation, the means, ultimately come from the Lord. Hannah suggesting to us that God has the ability to both give wealth through our efforts and the ability to take it away must remember this. Turn to him when we are in need and we need to praise him for what he has given us when he gives it. Must trust him for it. For it is his to give and take away. I have stories to tell about learning that lesson. Trying to understand what happens. Why can I not get a job? When I should, I felt so marketable. Why? God wrestled, I wrestled with God, asking why. And he said, because I'm in charge. This is how we do it. And I was, I struggled with that one. If you, want to, if you struggle to talk to me, if you have questions about that, talk to me. Because I know God is in control. Sounds good, hard to do. Contrast number six is found in the second half of verse seven says, he, meaning the Lord, brings low and he exalts. What has been true of financial wealth is also true of positional authority. In Hollywood, they talk about getting your 15 minutes of fame. The interest of the public is a fleeting thing. It comes and goes. Those who are socially influential, whether they're some kind of politician, we're in that season right now especially, or a TikTok influencer, doesn't really matter. They need to realize that the worldly influence is usually only for a brief period of time. Hollywood realizes it. That's why we even have the concept 15 minutes of fame. And even that timing is under God's control or allowance. If we find ourselves to have influence at some point, we need to value that. That's a great thing, a great blessing, but never forget where it comes from. God can raise someone up 
God can lower them down according to his plan. He's in control. Finally, we come to the last contrast, uh, number seven and verse eight, which is not really a contrast. It's not really two ways. We talked about going up and down or whichever. Here it's really just one direction. Moves only in one direction. It says this. He, meaning God, raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Then added, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. In case we missed it in the last contrast, here we have a reference more specifically to God's ability to raise someone who is poor to riches, someone who is needy to equal status with royalty to go from nobody to royalty god can do this because the pillars of the earth the foundation of everything is his he is foundationally in control of all things god's power and plan throughout the books of samuel the seed of honor is going to be given to individuals who come from nothing even saul was not really someone when he became king God chose him. Samuel is involved in that. And we're going to read about that. Saul is just a guy. A young guy who happens to be tall. And they say, let's make him king. And God does that. But then we see of David, we hear of David. David, when Samuel goes looking for David, he's like, is this everybody? Is there more? Oh yeah, there's the little one. The little kid, the youngest, he's out watching the sheep. Well, let's just wait for him to show up because maybe he's the one who will be king. David comes from nothing to kingship. This happens throughout the book. If you're ever elevated by God, that's a blessing for you. But never forget who's doing it. You're not made by God to all other people. I thought about this statement after I wrote it down and I thought, wow, that's weird. If you're not made by God to all other people, instead you must be awed by him. Your awe of God will allow him to use you in a positive way to bring him praise. But as soon as you go around trying to get everybody else to be impressed, that's not God's plan. So in summary, what do we have in all these contrasts? Let me, let me summarize it up. Uh, let's be positive. We'll go on the positive side. God is in control over having strength or not. God is in control of having food or not, or having children or not, or being safe and alive or not, or being rich or not, or being socially impressive in whatever way or not, in having authority and notoriety or, or not. So think with me just for a second, what else is there? What's the point of this pretty comprehensive list? Now, I think we could fight and find a little niche of something that's not talked about here, but... What's the point of these contrasts, these changes, these roles that God has? Remember my question to the kids? God is amazing in many ways, but one way in which God is unique is his sovereignty, his ultimate sovereignty, his control over everything. He's in charge of this world. To be sure, God's sovereign control is naturally rejected by people who reject God. That makes sense. We shouldn't be surprised by that. If you say God is not real or God doesn't matter to me, then you're going to say God is not in control. That makes sense. But even as sinful humans, even Christians fight against this reality. We are sinners. 
We fight against this. You see, sin could be understood as you and me telling God that He's not sovereign. He's not in charge over us. Or maybe even just a part of our lives. We're telling Him that we can decide what's right for us. We don't need Him or His directions. For followers of God, the Holy Spirit spends uh, His efforts in our lives showing us the places where we're doing this. Where we're trying to be in control. The Holy Spirit challenges us to change and then He empowers us to willingly give these areas over to God in His control. It's how we grow in the image of Jesus as we walk with God throughout our lives. That's what this process looks like. But that's not all that sovereignty entails. Also, for us who recognize God's authority, not only does it change us, but it also encourages us. It assures us that he can make a difference. Hannah's saying that God can change any situation. Remember our passage last week? Hannah couldn't have any children. And so what does she do? She cries out to God to change it. What happens? He does that. He opens her womb, but remember that he did it in his time. As we trust in that same God, we too should cry out to the one who can make things happen. It's right to cry out to the one who's in control and rest in his timing and his plan, remembering that God is sovereign. Now I've got to spell sovereign right. I'm writing too big for my paper. This leads to the final section of Hannah's prayer, verse 9 through 10. Hannah switches her verb tense. Notice the verbs change. She moves into talking about things in the future. There's an expectation that God is going to and will do something or continue to do something. The guiding statement here is found actually at the end of what we read. God will judge the ends of the earth. So everybody's going to be judged. There are two groups of people in these verses. There are the wicked who will be thundered against, meaning the voice of judgment will come from heaven. Their might or their strength, it says, will not save them against God. These adversaries of the Lord, it says, will be broken. They'll be made weak and destroyed. They'll be cut off. That's one group. There's another group. There are the faithful ones who God will guard over and he will they will not trust in their own strength but instead they'll trust in the lord's notice the last sentence god will give strength to his king means that hannah expects that one day god will have a king over his people remember for us that makes sense but for them for hannah that's never happened before among god's people it hasn't happened yet The ESV study Bible in some of its notes points out that this is the first occurrence of the word king in 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is the first time king gets mentioned. And in this verse, Hannah expresses her conviction that the ultimate king who judges, that would be God, is the one who gives power to his human king, the coming king, and lifts up the power of his anointed, it says. So God is involved, the one in charge is in charge of making the one in charge of his people, over his people. We've repeated this idea several times in this series of sermons already, that God's plan continues beyond Hannah and beyond Samuel and into the monarchy of Israel and into its kings. 
The reference to a king before the time of the kings is sometimes critiqued as uh, by some scholars. They wonder if someone placed these words in Hannah's mouth. But Hannah seems to be following the expectation of God's people. God set up these expectations, by the way, way back in the law under Moses before they take the promised land at all. And the injustices of the period uh, by, by having like rules and things for the king before there was a king. And then the time of the judges which is where we're at, the very end of the time of the judges show that without a king, God's people are in a mess. They need someone to lead. So she's crying out for that in that need. They need a stable and a godly leader for God's people. She's crying out for God's expected king who will bring justice and provision for those who are pressed among God's people. This cry and God's plan continues to the one who takes the throne of David. Because we find out human kings aren't really the best option. They don't work in the end as we look through the line of kings. We know we need a king. God's people need a king. The throne of God's people for eternity needs filled. By the one who brings stability. The one who frees his people from spiritual oppression in sin. And that king we've said, and I repeat again, is Jesus. Finally, we have at the end of these verses that God will exalt and raise up the horn of his anointed. Now, horn, the horn here is in the sense of an animal's horn. An animal was known to have power based on its horn. Like, look, the horns of the animal were its strength, its power. The horn of a ram or a bull was symbolizing their strength. When it's applied to a king, it's their strength and their authority. We'll see that used throughout the Bible, especially in Revelation is where I remember most running into it and thinking, what's going on? All these people running around with horns. Well, it's symbolic of their authority as kings. And as an added concept, just for us here, the anointing oil for a king or a priest, one of the study Bibles mentioned, was carried in a literal horn before it was applied to the one who would be king or priest. Both priests and kings are anointed. And the words anointed one here, When you see that, to his anointed one, that is the word Messiah. It's the word, literally, Messiah. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. When we say Jesus the Messiah, or we say Jesus the Christ even, we're saying Jesus the anointed one. He is the one set apart as our ultimate priest. They were anointed. He's the one set apart as God's ultimate king over us they were anointed jesus is the ultimate anointed one maybe something prophetic here but overall passage is that we can expect that god is going to continue to act clearly in hannah's prayer there's a trust that god is faithfully working god is awesome god is sovereign god is working God is working in this world. He's working in your life. He's working around you. I'm sure you noticed that we skipped one verse. We skipped over verse 1. Turn your attention to that one verse. The challenge to us this morning is found in verse 1, actually. In this prayer, and especially in this verse, Hannah's crying out to God, but notice it's very personal. She declares that God is her God, even before saying all these things about him. 
He has acted and she's committed herself to him forever. Hannah both begins and ends her prayer of praise talking about horns, interestingly. As we mentioned already, the horn is a symbol of strength. Hannah has been granted strength as she was given the child Samuel. She now has a clear response to the rival wife in her plural marriage. She has a response to her culture who says that God rejected you. Look, you can't even have a child. God has shown he's not forsaken her or rejected her. He has given her his strength just as he will be the strength of his coming king, both in the kings of Israel, but even more so, he will be the strength, he will be the king over us, of God's people forever through Jesus. Then Hannah declares her trust in God boldly when she says, my mouth derides my enemies. We have to be careful here. Uh, That would be kind of speaking bad about or speaking negatively about. And literally this, the expression says in Hebrew, my mouth is open wide against my enemies. So just picture Hannah with her mouth wide open and she's not gloating. She's not saying I'm saying bad stuff about them. I'm putting it in their face. This expression is about Hannah getting words out. She has her mouth open. She can't close her mouth. She can't be silent. Not about saying, ha look at that. But about saying, look at my God. My God is amazing. She is praising and she must praise God for his goodness. That's what she's saying here. Last notice that Hannah clearly rejoices. She praises God. She says that her heart exalts in the Lord, praises him. And she rejoices in, specifically, his salvation. In Hannah's life, everything comes from God. And he is her delight. That brings us to our challenge this morning. Hannah's clearly saying that God is her God, but now for you and for me. Is God your God? This morning I want to articulate the question in an idea of like callings. Now, by that I mean that, that as, um, as you realize who God is, there's a challenge or a call on your life. Have you have, res- have to respond. You don't get a chance not to respond. You have to respond as you understand God. Thinking of Hannah's declaration in prayer, let's work through these things. Calling number one, the awesomeness of God. What does it do? It leads us to a call to submission. If we see God's amazing uniqueness and recognize that he's over everything, and he is everything, and that we are not, it affects us. It has to affect us. That means that we realize who he is. We're challenged to make a personal declaration that we are his in light of his control over all things. Hannah does this when she says at the beginning, my, my God. Must declare our submission to him like she did. If you've never given your life to God or declared him to be your God, if you've never let him be king of your life, if you've just never said those words, the Lord of your life, then today is the day for that. Do it now. He can hear you. Every member in this church would love to talk to you about what that following Jesus looks like. What declaring him to be God of your life looks like. And if you have questions, you want to talk about this. Maybe you're a kid, you want to talk to mom and dad. That's great. Talk to somebody today about what it means to make God your God. For those of us who follow Jesus, we've declared that to be true. Let me suggest the struggle is not over The struggle to let God be God isn't over for us. 
Our entire walk with God is continual, a continual discovery. I mean, maybe you're better than me. Maybe it's just like random occasional discoveries. But for me, it's a continual discovery of areas of life that I've not yet submitted to him completely. Find somewhere else and say, wait a second, why am I so upset here? Oh, that's pride. Wait a second, why does this person bug me so much? Oh, usually that's some kind of arrogance or something in me. And the Holy Spirit shows me these things. That's what walking with God is, is about discovering those things. So where in your life do you need to submit or maybe even resubmit? your life to him. Maybe you need to give something up, change your life a little bit to protect you from some temptation or some normal pattern you have. Maybe you just need to get some people together who you know will pray for you. Just say, pray for me. Please pray for me. Maybe your submission needs to include telling somebody else who can keep you accountable, that can know about that weakness and pray for you specifically in your life. They can ask you about it. They can check in. We're not meant to walk this life alone. So our first calling is the call to submission. But then as we look at the next one, our realization that God is, that that the sovereign control Uh, that God is in control. That's how I want to word this. Our realization of the sovereign control of God leads us to a call to trust. Trust. Do you trust him? The uniqueness of God in all these big words is important. But if God is truly in control of things in life, he's the only one that we can trust. He's the only one in control. Romans 8.28, we've quotes... I don't know, I know of the people in this church, we quote this quite a bit. 8.28 declares that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That means all things, the faithfulness in your life, in your history, in your skills, your rebellion even, all these things are things that God can use for your good. To change you and shape you as he changes you from the patterns of this world and your life to his ways. You can grow from failure. You can minister from loss. And of course, you can serve from your strengths. Sure, God can use it all because he is in control. We can trust that he's working. But God's control, God's sovereignty, is also the key to contentment, really. To being okay and happy in this life. You'll you'll hear people quote Philippians 4.13 often, especially on the radio. But that verse requires some context. So Philippians 4.11-13 says this, I have learned, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Trusting in God's control, we can be content when we have lots, when we have little. That's what Paul's saying. What empowers Paul, or what what God empowers Paul to do in this specific passage is to endure little food. He can do all things like not get a lot of food. He can do all things like be in a very uncomfortable situation in chains, in prison, 
and be under very unsure future for himself because there's a serious possibility that he's going to die soon. And Paul declares, I can do all things. I can face all of this stuff because he strengthens me. I trust he is in control. How does Paul remain content? He knows that God's in control. So what about you? Are you content with where God has you right now? Maybe you need to cry out to God like Hannah. Give him your need. Yes, we should do that. Maybe you need to trust that he'll provide what you need. Yes, he can do that. Or maybe you just need to trust his timing. But trust him, the one who can do something. And finally, the third calling that we see through this prayer, the the trust that God is faithfully working, like we said, working out his plan, leads us to praise. To praise Him. To praise Him. If we see who God truly is and what He's doing, we're inspired to praise Him. That's because He brings true justice and removes injustice. He leads um, us to our good. And He removes our rebellion against Him in this world. He saved us. He is our salvation Himself. Hannah has more than a son. She has a God who is worthy of her praise. She is saved by her ultimate trust in God, and she even sees the amazing promise of his salvation through his coming king. She's driven to praise because of her trust in all that God has done, is doing, and will do. Are you like that? Are you praising him personally? Does your life look like praise to God? How does your praise of him change you? Right before we read this passage, we sang a song. It was, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I I felt like it was somewhat familiar. I hope it was familiar for you. The first verse talks about how God never changes. The second verse talks about the nature declares God's faithfulness and His mercy and His love. We can see it all around us. The final verse talks of God's faithfulness to us through the sacrifice of Jesus and His presence in our lives and the strength that he gives us. But this morning, I want to remind you of the chorus that's in line with this praise of Hannah. I hope it's in your, in your heart too. It says this, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. I see you working. I trust that you're working. I know that you're working. And it continues, All I have needed, thy hand has provided. You've given me everything I need. I trust you. You're in control. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Let that be your prayer and praise to God this morning. Let me pray for us. God, we declare that great is your faithfulness. When we are weak, you are in control. When we need, you can provide. When we don't see it, you are working around us. And even when we fail you, God, you are faithful to us. Help us to live more faithfully in obedience to you and your ways. Help us to be more faithful and to more faithfully trust in what you're doing and to more constantly praise you with our lives. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.